The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Our scripture reading this morning is Luke 3, 1 through 20. If you're using the Black Bible right in front of you, you will find that on page 806. Please stand with me as we read God's Word. Luke chapter 3. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Aturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, here we are. We are uh, continuing our journey in Luke's gospel. As you just heard, we find ourselves in Luke 3, 1 through 20. And uh, probably, maybe for many of us, we're beginning to head into unfamiliar territory, or at least not as familiar territory as where we've been the past several weeks in Luke 
chapters 1 and 2. 1 and 2 are the Christmas story passages that we hear so often. We hear those, we nod our heads, we agree, we understand, um, because we've heard them so often. But as Luke's gospel continues to unfold, we're probably heading into territory that's maybe just not as familiar for many of us. And what we're going to hear is actually uh, the preparation that this man, John the Baptist, was called to as what is in essence is the last Old Testament prophet that God had sent. So what I want to do is to do what we normally do, uh, and that is to pause before we turn to the preaching of God's Word and ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to, to arrest our attention. And there can be a multitude of things that distract us on any given Sunday morning. Amen? Um, if your mind is like my mind, like even while I'm preaching, sometimes there's like just stuff going on in the back of my mind of like, man, like I just wish my mind would be a little bit more solid. It's just crazy how the enemy of our soul, and I mean this phrase with, with every ounce of what I'm saying, is hell-bent on making sure you do not see Jesus this morning. He's hell-bent, happy to do so. And so one of the things we can do is we can pray and ask for the power of Christ himself to arrest our attention. Now, what we're going to be talking about this morning, a key phrase that I think is crucial for us to understand this morning is found there in verse 3, where Luke explains to us the Baptist's message, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that word there is repentance. And I think, just as I've been praying, studying, preparing to be a messenger this morning to you, is that what we are going to see as it relates to repentance for the forgiveness of sins is something absolutely crucial for us. And I'm saying all this by way of a longer introduction before we pray is because of this. I know the temptation in my own heart is that I really want us to get repentance this morning. That's not a bad desire that I have, but I know myself enough to know is that I sometimes want to rest the responsibility of the Holy Spirit, pull it off of His shoulders, put it onto my shoulders, and sort of play the part of the Spirit and preach and speak and act in certain ways to try to convince you of what is to be said this morning. And I just want to remind you of how much of a fool's errand that is. I do not have that power or that ability. And I was never designed to have that power or the ability. There is one who has that power and that ability, and his name is the Holy Spirit. Jesus reminds us in John 16 that it is the job of the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. To convict us that we are sinners and as sinners we are not right with God. And if we die in a state of not rightness with God, judgment will come and we'll receive what we justly deserve for our sin. The Spirit must move this morning for us to grasp the crucial nature of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So I guess that's a long introduction for me to ask this. Would you do what John just asked us to do this morning? And join me in prayer, asking for the Holy Spirit to do only what he can do, which is convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Amen? All right? As Jesus people, let's do that, and then we'll turn into the text and see what God has for us this morning. All right? Lord, it is... 
plainly obvious, I'm assuming to all, it is plainly obvious to me how uh, I do not have a bag of magic words, a bag of magic phrases. My mere message, the speech that's about to come out of my mouth in and of itself, none of these things has power to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. No power to convict us of the absolute crucial need for repentance that leads to the forgiveness of sins. Holy Spirit, you do. And so I'm asking that you move in power right now through the preaching of your word so that my speech and message that will come out of my lips, but it will come out in such a way landing on hearts and minds where it would be as though the Holy Spirit has basically grabbed me by the scruff of the neck, shoved me off to the side, and the one that is front and center, center stage in the limelight is, our, is the Lord Jesus Christ and our absolute need for the repentance of sin and forgiveness of sin. That can be found in Jesus alone. Holy Spirit, would you do this for all within earshot this morning? Believer, unbeliever, seeker, questioner, doubter, wherever we might be on the spectrum as it relates to Jesus, Holy Spirit, help us to see our need for Jesus. It's in his name, our King, our Lord, our Christ, that I pray these things. Amen. So here we are, Luke 3. If you think about it, the last time uh, we saw John the Baptist, we're obviously talking about John the Baptist. He is here at the center of, of what we're talking about in these first 20 verses in, in Luke 3. If you just go in your mind's eye back to the last time we saw John was back in chapter 1, where the birth of John was foretold right alongside the uh, birth of Jesus being foretold. So if you notice what Luke is doing, he's pretty consistently saying, see John, but see Jesus, see John, but see Jesus, see John, but see Jesus. This is the third time now that we're seeing this birth foretold of John, but then it's Jesus. Then the actual birth of John, then it's see Jesus. And right now we're, we're doing this again. We see the start of John's public ministry here in chapter 3, and in the next couple weeks to come, you'll see the official launch, public launch of Jesus' ministry, and then John will fade into the background, and then it'll be a full-orbed concentration on Jesus throughout the remainder of Luke's gospel. So as we roll into chapter 3, with the start of this chapter, what you need to know is that about 30 years or so have elapsed since we've last seen the child John, who is now in chapter 3 a full-orbed preacher of repentance. In the long line of Old Testament prophets, the Baptist, he is the last, and like those who've gone before him, his life, his calling, his message, his ministry, it is consumed with saying, hey everybody, you need to wake up, you need to pay attention, the Christ is here, the Messiah is here, you do not want to miss him, my whole life is bent in being leveraged toward you coming to believe and receive that this Jesus of Nazareth, he is God's Savior, he is God's Christ, he is God's Lord. That is the consuming center of John the Baptist's life. 
And if you remember, this consuming center of his life is really no big surprise to us. His dad's name was Zechariah. If you go back into chapter 1, Luke tells us that there was a time right there about the birth of his son that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and the prophecy that came out of his lips concerning his son was that his son, John, would go before the Lord to prepare his ways. That his son, John, would give knowledge of salvation to the people in the forgiveness of of their sins and it only took about 30 years for that prophecy to be fulfilled as now John the roughly 30 year old is coming onto the scene and he is going about having received the word of God there in verse 2 and what does he do he begins to proclaim a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins just like his daddy said And while he's doing this, he is preaching the good news of Jesus to the people. That phrase there in verse 18, preaching the good news, is the word that we get the word gospel from. And so what John is doing, if you want to turn that noun into a verb, is he's gospeling people. He's going around saying there's really good news, as the shepherds heard of great joy, that a Savior, a Christ who is Lord, has been born, and you need to repent of your sins and seek God for the forgiveness of those sins. But while we are looking at John the Baptist, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, my encouragement is don't be sidetracked by this. While it is true we are looking at the Baptist, we are meant to keep our focus, though, squarely on Christ. And the reason why I say that is because that is what John does. If you heard what Tara was reading there at the end, people are going to come up to him and say, man, you're doing some mighty things of God. Are you the Christ? And he's going to step out of the way and say, no, this is the Christ. He is pointing to Christ. His job is to preach and then fade into the background. Sort of like that one meme with Homer Simpson, right? Where he's standing in front of that bush and then he just sort of like fades off into the distance. You don't see him anymore. That is what John is doing. He's going to step up and say, Jesus, and then he's just going to fade back into the bush. He's not to be seen anymore. He's to be out of the limelight. And so John's mode of speaking and life and ministry is ultimately to be ours, and I think that's what we're meant to see here this morning. Luke continues to fill out the Savior's resume. Remember what I've been saying this whole time. When we look at chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, Luke is bent on making sure you understand That when Jesus shows up on the scene with the launch of his public ministry in Luke chapter 4, he is not just some Johnny-come-lately who's just sort of drifted out of the woodwork and is just saying some random things. He is the only one qualified with the necessary credentials to be the Savior who makes salvation possible for all people from every nation. And what is the proof that we see here, yet this um, another credential that we can find even here in the ministry of John the Baptist? It is our main idea, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins is found in Jesus alone. 
He's going to preach a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then at the very end of this passage, he's going to step back and say, and it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. You must come to him for the forgiveness of sins that you need. This is how John is preparing the way of the Lord. He's laying out the road work so that when Jesus comes, the way is smooth, people can come to him so that all flesh, it says there in verse 6, that is, all people can see the salvation of God. So where does Luke begin? He begins by showing us John's message. What was the message of John? It's point number one this morning. It's this. He is a man proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If you're right in your Bible or you got the little journals, I would encourage you to circle verse 3, and I would encourage you to circle verse 18. These are the key verses for this morning, and in verse 3 specifically, you see the content of John's message. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So as we roll into verse 1, just notice again how Luke is anchoring God's story of redemption with extreme historical precision. Verse 1, Luke writes for us, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Remember, Luke is writing so that as we read the account, what we begin to see is that the things he is showing us about Jesus, this isn't myth, this isn't odyssey, this isn't legend, this isn't the stuff of of unicorns, this is real. It's taking place in real life. So looking at the history of this moment, Luke lists for us one Roman emperor Tiberius Caesar, because Caesar Augustus that we saw back in chapter 2, he's no longer on the stage of history. We see one Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. We now see three Roman-appointed tetrarchs. Tetrarch's a fancy word for ruler, because Herod the Great that we saw back in chapter 1, he's no longer on the scene. And we see these two Jewish high priests. Yet notice that in the midst of all this historical detail, yet for All the amazing feats that any of these men may have accomplished, the event that Luke wants you to see and wants me to see is that in these days, the Word of God came to the son of an ordinary elderly priest. The Word of God was once again on the move. The last time the Word of God came to a prophet like John was about 400 years prior when it came to the prophet Malachi. On the surface, a word from God that we see in verse 2 coming to a desert dweller, it pales in comparison to the movers and the shakers which Luke has just mentioned. Just notice the dichotomy there. The Caesars and the governors and the rulers and all these things, you're meant to go, wow, these are the movers and the shakers of the day. Why would we care about a man living in the desert wilderness? And Luke says we care because the event that happened in his life was the word of God coming to him. And it's that event, the word of God, which seems to pale in comparison 
to the movers and shakers of his day. It's this event that is going to unleash a chain of events that is going to change the course of world history and still is today. When John the Baptist steps on the scene and begins to say, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, and that is in fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah was saying and what people would know who knew their Bible is when this man, the preparer, comes, that means the Savior that we've been longing for is just right on his heels. And it's that chain of events of Jesus showing up on the scene that is just going to dump the world upside down on its head and has been ever since these things have been taking place. You see, God's word to John, it propels him to go and do something. And what does it propel him to do there in verse 3? It propels him to go into all the region around the Jordan, that's the Jordan River, And it propels him with this message to proclaim a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This was his message. Not because he dreamed it up. John isn't out in the wilderness calling people to repent of their sins, calling them to turn to God for the forgiveness of their sins, to be baptized as a result of these things. He's not out there doing this because he dreamed this up. He's not out there because he thinks, you know what? It's time to make some stuff happen. I think I'm just going to get the ball rolling and I'm just going to make a decision and I'm just going... There's no lot of I am's. It's God spoke, John base. And it's this message that is going to shoot John out the door, so to speak. John is the long-promised voice crying in the wilderness. He is the one who is the fulfillment of the words written in the book of Isaiah the prophet. Straight paths need to be made. The way of the Lord must be prepared. And it's the message and ministry of John the Baptist that's going to remove hindrances so that all people will be able to see the salvation of God made available to sinners in one person alone, Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 7, notice therefore, verse 7, In light of receiving God's word, which is what we learned back in verse 2, and in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, John looks to the crowds that are beginning to gather around him. Luke says crowds that came out to be baptized by him, and he leads off with the absolute opposite of what you would imagine him to lead off with. You would imagine a preacher who is making straight paths for people to come to Jesus would be like, hey guys, I'm glad you're here. Maybe if you want to listen, I'm going to try to meet some felt needs. I don't really want to speak anything harsh because I want people to stick around and I don't want to say anything wacky because I don't want to push you away from the Savior. So what I'm going to do is tone down my message, tone down my words, tone down my actions, tone down my attitude. He doesn't do that. His opening gambit as the preacher is like, hey, welcome you snakes. Who in the heck told you to come on out here and hear me? Most people, you would imagine, wouldn't lead off their sermon like that. If I stepped into the pulpit and just welcomed you as a bunch of serpentine devilish, because that's the, the intimation that's going on there, you're acting like sons of the devil, a serpent. Who told you guys to come on out here? Shouldn't you guys go be doing something else on a Sunday morning, you know, go on, move on, move on down the line? You'd be like, I think that guy's lost, lost his mind. But that's not what John does. 
John looks at the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, and his opening gambit is this, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, admittedly, this is a startling response on the part of John. Like, why is John so cranky at the crowds for doing what he told them to do? After all, they came out to be baptized by him because he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to them. He's saying, go baptize, repentance, forgiveness. They came out to be baptized. He's like, why why are you guys here? It's like, well, I think they're here because you told them to come. He's challenging them. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And it's like, John, you did. You told them to flee from the wrath to come. But what Luke wants us to see in this moment is that when John is speaking like he's speaking, this is not schizophrenia on the part of John. He's not got some split mind happening right now where he's like saying one thing and forgetting about it and acting another way. This is John. Listen, when John speaks like he speaks in the opening of his sermon, this is John being serious about the deep-seated, radical repentance for the necessary forgiveness of sins. What you need to know is this, the word repentance, there in your Bible, it translates a word in the original language which means a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of understanding, a change of seeing, a change that says, I was assuming this, I was thinking this, I was believing this, and as a result, I was acting in this way, But repentance, this idea of repenting, is to say, I've had a change of mind. I'm no longer seeing, understanding, believing, acting, behaving in this way. But because of this particular truth, I am now turning from this, and I'm changing from what I used to believe, and I'm now turning and believing this. All of that is wrapped up and packed into the word repentance. Repentance translates a word which means a change of mind. Thus, the Baptist was summoning people to change their minds and turn back to God. That's what he's calling them to do. This is the good news on his lips. The Savior is here. The one who can make you right with God. You've been living your life in a particular way that you've decidedly said, I'm not quite sure I need God. I'm pretty sure I don't need his Savior. I don't agree with what he says about sin. I don't agree with what he says about the way I'm called to live. I don't agree with X. I don't agree with Y. And John is saying, if you stay on that track, it's going to lead to judgment. But you can repent, have a change of mind regarding things. And when you turn to God, you can know forgiveness of sin. And so what John is doing is saying, I'm preaching to you, change of mind, turn to God. You see, a person must change their mind. They must have a change of mind. And see that I am actually a sinner. They must have a change of mind and agree that a holy God can have nothing to do with sin. There must be a change of mind that leads a person to confess, well, if a holy God who can have nothing to do with sin, then that means he can have nothing to do with me, a sinner. Thus, there must be a change of mind that comes to the conclusion and says, if I do not turn to God for the forgiveness of my sin, then I will receive God's just wrath for my sin. You see, without 
repentance, there can be no forgiveness of sin. There can be no forgiveness of sin without repentance. There's no membership among God's people. There's no experience of God's blessing without repentance. No matter what a person's spiritual degree might be, no matter their previous experiences in their past life, no matter their qualifications or their privileges, repentance is a prerequisite for the forgiveness of sins. If you are going to be counted among people who can stand up and say with assurance, I have had my sins forgiven, but I've never repented of my sins, John the Baptist is saying, those two worlds can't exist. They can't exist. To stand up and say, I have had my sins forgiven, past, present, future. That is the assurance that can be spoken on the lips of someone who has come to the place where they have seen. I used to not think myself a sinner, but by the power of God, I've been changed, and I know myself to be a sinner. I used to not care about the holiness of God, but I now come to see that God is holy, and he can have nothing to do with sin. I've come to see now that if he is holy, he can have nothing to do with sin, and that if I truly am a sinner, then he can have nothing to do with me. And I've truly come to see I did not give a rip about forgiveness of sin. I did not give a rip about coming and confessing. I did not give a rip about seeking God, but I've come to see that if I I am going to be right with God, if I'm going to be saved by God, if I'm going to have my sins forgiven, if I'm going to know eternal life, if I'm going to go from spiritual death to spiritual life, from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. These are all ways the Bible speaks about salvation. If these things are going to be true about me, then my mind and my heart must be changed by God to see that I must repent. I must repent for the forgiveness of my sins. If we draw the conclusions, I do not need to repent then we are drawing the conclusion, I do not need forgiveness for my sins. You see, as fallen human beings, John understands that people instinctively take refuge in the externals of religion. Do you understand what I mean by that? John is not saying uh, what you must go through is uh, become a Catholic, go to catechism, be baptized as an infant, belong to a Methodist church, have Pentecostal grandparents, give money to a church, read your Bible, know a pastor, have an uncle who used to be a pastor, a grandma who used to teach Sunday school, these are the things that make you right with God. John understands that people instinctively take refuge in the externals of religion, trusting that these are the things that will make me right with God. This is why he says there in verse 8, to those in the crowd, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
John knows enough to know there's people in the crowd hearing his message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and drawing the conclusion, we're actually okay with God without repenting. Just like some of us here this morning are hearing me repeat the Baptist message to us, and we're saying things like this. I hear what the man's saying. He's obviously into it. He's animated about it. He's speaking loudly about it. But I just don't know that I believe him because I grew up in church. Because I'm actually a pretty good guy. Because I'm definitely not as bad as her. Because I've raised my kids right. Because I give money to this good organization. Because I'm a Methodist. Because I'm a Presbyterian. Because I'm a Baptist. Because I've been baptized. Because I've been catechized. Because, 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 because of all the wonderful things I does. You know, like all these sorts of things, right? But the Baptist is over here saying, listen, to bank your hope of salvation. To bank your hope that I will one day stand before God and be met with God saying, your sins are forgiven because I was awesome at the externals of religion. The Baptist is saying to you that you have a false hope. You have a false hope. The Jews that John was talking to were not to presume upon anything. Rather, they were to turn to God with a deep-rooted personal repentance, each and every one of them. They were to come to that place where they recognize, yes, even though in this particular context I am considered ethnically a Jew, and that wraps me up into some very specific promises as it relates to God's covenant with his people, this people of God known as, as Israel. I know these sorts of things. I know we've received the law. I know we've been given the prophets. But what I am not going to do is bank my hope on the fact that these things of religion are what make me right with God. What I'm going to do is recognize that I am a sinner, God is holy, and I must repent of my sin. I must turn from sin and turn to God, trusting that if I bank my my hope of salvation in him alone, that is how I'm going to find forgiveness for my sins. And we know that struggle. Surely we've talked to people where we say things like that and it just rolls right off them like water off a duck's back. They just don't see it. Maybe that is your testimony. How for years and years and years, someone explained the gospel, explained the gospel, explained your need to repent, explained your need to repent, and it was like this, in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. Then one day the Holy Spirit intervenes and your eyes are open and you see your need to repent and believe. You see, it's sinners like these, John says, sinners who have repented of sin turned to God alone for salvation. It's sinners like these that should be baptized to show they had repented of their sins and turned to God. He also says it's sinners like these who've repented of their sin and turned to God for salvation whose lives will, notice there in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
The Baptist is no preacher of cheap grace. The Baptist is no preacher of easy believism. If you're hearing the Baptist say to the crowd, hey y'all, come on out, get dipped in some water, say with your lips, I repent and I believe in Jesus for salvation, and he goes, you're good. He's not saying that. What he is saying is, when you come to the place where you truly repent, when you come to the place where you truly turn to God for salvation of sin, for forgiveness of sin, your life will begin to have so radically changed that your behaviors on the external will begin to give off indicators that something internal, radically deep-seated and deep-rooted has actually taken place. So what John is not saying here is, you must do works in order to be saved. He's not saying that. He's not saying, go and bear fruit, and if you bear enough fruit, God will give you repentance. He's not saying that. What he's saying is when you come to the place and by the power of the Holy Spirit, your eyes are exploded open and your mind changes. I'm a sinner. God is holy. I need him to forgive me and I'm trusting in him alone. That internal reorganizing, returning around our lives, it will not just remain an internal thing, but out of the change of heart that God has brought, fruits will start to come out of our life and people will be able to say that person is not the same anymore and there's no way that this change cannot happen it has to happen he says to the crowd here listen i know why you're out here this is part of the explanation why he says you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come because matthew's gospel tells us there's a lot of religious folk in the crowd who are out there to be baptized because this is just what the religious thing is to do Just like many of us grew up in traditions where there was just religious things to do, we just did those things because it was just the external thing to do, and it had nothing to do with true, genuine heart change. And he's looking and saying, listen, if you're out here thinking that going to church on a Sunday, attending a community group on Wednesday, reading your Bible or saying a prayer, or being baptized in certain ways is going to make you right with God, you brood of vipers. You're acting like your father, the serpent of old Satan himself. You're trying to manipulate the externals, but God is not a God of the externals. God is a God of the heart. You need a heart transformation. And when your heart has been radically transformed, true, genuine repentance has come, the fruit of repentance will bloom in the externals because the internal soil of your heart has been made new. Amen? That's what John is driving at here when he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So the Baptist is not preaching cheap grace. Do a couple things to get into heaven. You're good to go. Next! He's not saying that. There's a difference between true repentance and false repentance. False repentance is mere lip service. Someone merely saying, yeah, I've repented. Yeah, I've turned to God. Yeah, I've been baptized. Yet despite their words, the evidence of their life is, verse 9, one that does not bear 
the fruit of repentance. True repentance, genuine repentance, on the other hand, will reach deep down into relationships. True repentance will reach its arms, so to speak, into the habitual practices of the home. True repentance will extend its arms into the workplace, extend its arms into the public sphere. It will mean that there is real-life generosity that is born from God's generosity shown to us in Jesus. That's what he says to the crowd there. Do you see that? The crowds come to him and say, then what then shall we do? They're not asking what kind of works do we need to do in order to be saved. They're saying, what will this look like in my life, John? Can you be a good preacher for once and give us some application? <laughs> Which is something I fail to do often enough. John isn't going to do that. He says, this is what it'll look like. It'll look like sometimes you see a person who has two tunics, maybe that's you, and you see someone who has no one and has none, and instead of going home and being like, wow, man, I sure hope they figure that out, you actually share something with them. And it just sort of buckles, like, that, that is a pragmatic fruit of repentance? And John says, yeah. You're not giving away one of your tunics because you're trying to do a good deed so that in the end of all things, when you stand before God, there's a lot of good tunic deeds that are outweighing all the bad deeds in the hopes that you can sway God to let you into heaven. What you're doing is out of the overflow of the generous, deep, deep love of God that we sang about this morning, the natural bent of your heart is, man, I'm no longer who I once was, and now I desire, have a genuine desire to be generous to those around me. And John says that is a genuine fruit of repentance. It will mean real-life honesty in our business practices as we imitate our God who cannot lie. That's what he says to the tax collectors. They came to be baptized by him as a teacher. What shall we do? And he says, listen, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Be honest. Is this not what happens in Luke 19 with Zacchaeus, the wee little man? Has a radical encounter with Jesus. And Jesus eventually comes to say, today salvation's come to this man. And you're like, how, how do we know that? Like, there's no sinner's prayer. Jesus doesn't be like, well, repeat after me. You know, leads him through some sinner's prayer. He doesn't leave him down the Roman's road. And then Zacchaeus repeats after him. And all of a sudden, he says, salvation has come to him. Why do we know this? Because in the story of Zacchaeus, he's a tax collector who had been bilking people of their cash, seeking dishonest gain. And he says, if I've taken anything from anyone, I'm going to restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus is living out a fruit of genuine repentance in that moment. He's not trying to persuade Jesus to save him. Because he's come to see Jesus as the Savior he needs, the fruit that is born out of that radical repentance is, I understand I've been cheating a lot of folks dishonestly, and I'm going to honestly now operate my business practice. It'll mean real-life contentment. Real-life contentment that kills the lurking desires of selfish gain at another's expense because we've denied ourselves, picked up our cross, and followed Jesus. Look what he says to the soldiers there in verse 14. They come and ask him, Lord, what shall, or, uh, to John the Baptist, what shall we do? And what does John say to them? Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. In other words, what John is saying 
is that an internal change of heart, an internal change of mind brought about by God will be observable externally. It will be observable externally. And where there is a lack of observable external change, where there is a lack of external observable change. Now hear me. I am not talking about perfection. Any perfect Christians here this morning? I'm putting my arm down now. I'm going to show you. Raise your hand if you're not. My, my hand's not raised. Any perfect Christians here this morning? Come on. Raise your hands. Where are you at? Oh, nobody. Okay. Welcome to the club. I'm right there with you. I'm sort of the chief president. I'm the operating CEO of this club, by the way, the non-perfect Christian. I'm not talking about those of us who just have weak faith in those seasons of struggle, right, where we're just we're high, we're low, the prayer on our lips seems to be more often, I believe, help my unbelief. Anyone ever been there in that, that category before? I'm not talking now like the Romans 7 kind of Christian, doing what I don't want to do, not doing what I want to do. I'm not talking about that, that person right now, okay? Some of us have sensitive souls, and right now you're hearing the words coming out of my mouth and you're assuming I'm talking about you. I'm just telling you there's like a 99.9% .9 chance I'm not talking to you right now. There is, whether you can see it or not, there is actual genuine fruit of repentance in your life. Sometimes it can be hard to see. Sometimes it can be clear to see. What I'm talking about right now is this. The person who said the thing, walked the aisle, said the prayer, been baptized, but when you look at their life ever since that moment, for whatever amount of length of time it is, you just begin to look and you have to draw the conclusion there is no observable external fruit of repentance in their life. John is saying to you, listen, don't don't go down this route. The kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. And it's actually kindness on the part of John the Baptist to call people out and say, you're banking your hope of eternal life in something that will not yield eternal life. I love you too much to let you draw the false conclusion. Hear me, repent, and be saved. And that is the question I have for you this morning. Have you truly repented? Have you truly repented? Notice again, I'm not asking, have you been baptized? I'm not asking that. I'm not asking, were you raised in a certain denomination? I'm not asking, do you give money to the church? I'm not asking if you're a good person. I'm not asking, I'm not asking, I'm not asking. I'm not asking you, have you come to the place in your life where you see, I'm a sinner, God is holy, and if I get what I deserve from a holy God, I will be met with the wrath of God, as John says in verse 7, and the hope of salvation, the hope of not receiving wrath, the hope of receiving eternal life means I come to God in forgiveness of sins, looking to him. I'm asking you, have you, not your grandpa, not your grandma, not your spouse, not your children, not your neighbor, not your coworker, look in the mirror right now and point your finger and say, sir, ma'am, have you truly repented? Some of the signs and the fruit you'll begin to see is this. You'll see some of the things that was being talked about here with the crowds and the tax collectors and the soldiers. Some of us might be like, yeah, I'm not in those categories, but what about this? What if you're phenomenal at cussing and yucking it up with foul language in the workplace, even though you claim the name of Christ? 
then all of a sudden you're genuinely saved. I think a fruit of repentance is that you will no longer be one who delivers words of death, but you'll be one who delivers words of grace. And people begin to go like, dude, yesterday, like you were joining in on the raunchy sexual jokes and you were the one just taking God's name in vain even though you say you go to church. And like, how come you stopped? And you can answer, because God has radically changed me and I have repented for the forgiveness of my sins. A fruit of repentance means this, like maybe you're just an atrocious husband, like not on the outside, but maybe you're just verbally, emotionally abusive in the home. And then one day you leave church and you go home and all of a sudden your wife's like, hey, you used to always just make, whatever, abuse me in these sorts of ways. And how how come you've stopped? I've noticed you just don't do that as much as you do anymore. As a matter of fact, you don't do do it at all. And then you as a husband can say, man, the Holy Spirit wrecked my life. I've repented of my sins for the forgiveness. I've repented of my sins and turned to God for the forgiveness of my sins. Maybe as a child, it can look something as simple as this. You consistently delighted in disobeying your parents. Come on, Pastor John, don't be getting into that realm, yeah? I'm talking not like the two and the three and the four and the five and the six-year-olds among us. I'm talking like the 10, 12, 13, 14, the teenagers among us as well. If you've come to the place where you've said, Lord is my Savior, I've repented of my sins, I've turned to God for salvation, but leading up to that point, you were just completely rebellious. You had no desire for anything regarding your parents. You were habitually, rhythmically, consistently, happily disobeying your parents, and you come to say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and then as it relates to you in that one area of life, you are still consistently, rhythmically, habitually disobedient to your parents. Something is disconnected. Something's disconnected. Is this not prag- pragmatic? At it's practical. Salvation has practical effects in our everyday life. Believing the gospel has practical effects in our everyday life. Have you truly repented? Now, admittedly, I have belabored point number one in our sermon. You'll be happy to know point number two is going to be immensely faster, okay? And all God's people said, amen. All right, so point number two, preaching the good news of Jesus to people. If John's message is repentance for the forgiveness of sins, what was his ministry? That was his message. What was his ministry? His ministry was, I'm going to gospel a lot of people. I'm going to gospel as many people as I can. I'm going to make sure people know about their opportunity to find forgiveness for their sins by turning from sin and turning to Jesus. Just look starting in verse 15. We'll just read the text here. Notice what it says. The people were in expectation. They ain't seen no one like John in about 400 years. Verse 15, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John. You know what? Is this the Christ? Is he the one we've actually been longing for? Like, is he here in front of us? John answered them all though saying, listen, let me, let me help steer you in the right direction. It's true. I'm out here, the voice baptizing you with water, but there is one, he, he who is mightier than I is coming. The straps of his sandals, like I'm not even worthy to un- untie them. It's true, I'm baptizing you with water, but he, this mighty one, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
judgment language here. He's going to come saving and judging, winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. Look at verse 18 here. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Listen, John's entire ministry was a ministry that pointed away from him, pointed to Jesus. His aim was to decrease. His aim was for Christ to increase. John's role is to point to Jesus and get out of the way. You don't need to see me. Jesus, fade into the bush. Jesus, fade into the bush. Jesus, fade into the bush. Yes, I know I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I, he will baptize you with the Spirit and fire. The Baptist, listen, the Baptist is able to do no more than make a person wet. That's, all. that's what he's doing. No, it means something, but that's what he's doing. He's baptizing people with water. He's, he's making people wet. But the Lord Jesus, he says, is going to flood a person's life with the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. And it's his baptism, the, spirit, the, the baptism of the Spirit that Jesus brings is going to bring a new heart. It can bring, has the power to bring fresh desires, and it's that new power to actually live for God, which trumps anything John is able to do. That's why John is stepping out of the way saying, listen, I'm preparing the way for you to come to him. He has the power to change you from the inside out. So the question I ask you again, have you truly repented of your sins? Stand back and behold, says Luke, repentance for the forgiveness of sins is found in Jesus alone. He's Savior and he is judge. Either we will know his baptism with the Holy Spirit as someone who has repented for the forgiveness of sins, or we will know Jesus' baptism with fire as someone unrepentant who's going to face his judgment. The good news message of John, there it is in verse 18, the good news message, the gospel message that he's gospeling to people as he goes about traveling around, this good news message of John is the exact same good news message of today, yes? The gospel hasn't changed. The gospel on the lips of John is the gospel for you and me today. And that good news message that is before any of us today is this. Listen, repent while it is, t repent today. Repent today. Repent while it is called today and come to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. So I ask you now a third time, have you, have you repented of your sin? Let's pray. Father, I'm asking that you would do a great work in us, having heard your word preached. Lord, much content has been spoken, but by the power of the Spirit, I'm asking that you would clear away what needs to be cleared away so that what needs to remain in our heart and our mind remains. Lord, we trust you now that you are in some way, right now in this moment, answering our prayer at the beginning of the sermon. The prayer that you would do the work of convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Convicting us to see our need for Jesus. Holy Spirit, come now, we ask you, and to do what you love to do, which is convict and turn us to Jesus. Convict and turn us to Jesus. Convict and turn us to Jesus. Lord, if there's someone who needs to talk 
because the Holy Spirit is convicting them, Lord, would you grant them the courage, the boldness to seek someone out to talk about this? Lord, I ask in your power and strength that you would keep the evil one at bay who desires nothing more than to swoop in and steal these gospel seeds so that we might just forget about them as soon as we leave this place. Lord, do these things for your name. Do these things for your glory. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.